0: Good evening, everyone. Week number four, no snow. This is good. Finally, no snow. Yes. Thank you guys for being here. We're excited to uh, keep plugging along. If you are a guest, if this is your first time, if you're visiting with us, a special welcome to you. We're really glad that you're here. Uh, If you have any questions about anything, find somebody with one of the lanyards hanging around your neck. They're here to serve you and to help you and to answer any questions that you have. So we're really glad that you've joined us tonight. You've joined us in our soft launch. So... Tonight, uh, in, for the first four weeks, we've kind of been in phase one of our soft launch, and so we've got some of the stuff that we're going to have, and we're a little bit scaled down and trying to figure everything out, how to do church this way. And so next week, actually, uh, begins sort of the second phase of our soft launch, where things are going to look a little bit different here Um Portable Church is going to come in and going to bring some stuff. I'll talk about that here in a second. But we're gearing up toward Easter. So Easter is our hard launch. That's five weeks from today. Actually, it's crazy. It's coming. It's coming quickly. Um, so we're getting really, really excited for that. Hopefully, by that point, we'll have all of the or most of the bugs uh, taken care of. Most of the wrinkles ironed out. But uh, we're really glad that you joined us tonight. Um, I want to say this, too. So uh, next Saturday is kind of a big day for us. We've been talking about this portable church training for a while. Um, From 8 o'clock until 12 o'clock, this company is going to come in who we've purchased some supplies from. They're going to deliver the rest of our supplies, and then they're going to train us how to set it all up and how to tear it all down. And so we're going to do that in the morning. Uh, If you need to be here, you should know that. Okay, so we should have communicated that to you already. basically, uh, folks that are on setup team, teardown team, and audio visual lighting team are the ones that we're asking to be here. Everybody else you can just show up normal time uh, We'll be a little bit tired next week, I think, because uh, we'll come back about three o'clock and set it all up again, but we're really excited. Uh, At What God has been doing and we're very very excited for Easter when Lord willing we'll have lots of other guests that we're going to get a chance to get to know and to love and to minister to so uh, we're really glad that you're here tonight Um, in your programs pull those out if you would in your programs uh, for the second week in a row we put a little insert in here that uh, is this one. And it's got information on how you can get plugged in. So many of you are already plugged in in wonderful ways. And if you're serving... Um, we're not asking you to do more. But if you're not plugged in yet and you want to be, this is a great way uh, to communicate to us where you would like to serve. So last week we talked about we have no spare parts, right? And we said everybody's important. Everybody has a part to play. And we kind of challenge you to think about what is the part that you have and are you doing what you've been designed to do, right? And so this is a great way for you to fill this out. If you did this last week, you don't need to do it again. But if you uh, would like to get plugged in somewhere... Fill this out, drop it in the offering thing there. The top five needs that we have are in red. So the ones in red are like our most urgent needs. So um, you can just write your information and we will contact you with that. Also, last week we talked about the uh, Salvation Army. So the and Salvation Army has expressed need uh, for food, pretty significant need for food. Their shelves are getting very bare and so one of our missions at Grace Church in planning this campus is to love the community, right, and to serve the community. And so even though we got a lot of stuff going on around here to try to figure out how to do church this way, um, we hear this need in the community. and We want to meet it. And so we're collecting food for them. Uh, this week, many people have dropped it off at the Welcome Center down below there where you came in. We're going to do it next week as well. And so if you are interested in bringing some stuff, here's what they're looking for, basically non-perishable things. So Talking about canned fruit, meat, vegetables, cereal, rice, beans, pasta, that sort of stuff. We also found out that they could use toiletries as well. So toilet paper, toothpaste, deodorant, those sorts of things. They also said that if you would prefer to donate money, you can do that as well. You just make your check out to the and Salvation Army. So we're going to do this for another week. If you would like to bring some stuff, that would really be a blessing to them. We'll make sure everything gets taken over there. Um, Tonight, we're going to continue on in our series, our very first series that we're doing here at the Barberton campus called Epicenter, and we call it Epicenter because the epicenter is the center of an earthquake, right? It's the center of a disturbance from which shockwaves just radiate out in every direction and they affect everything that they encounter. And we said the gospel is very much like the epicenter of an earthquake in our lives, right? The gospel is a disturbance that affects every single part of us. And so the first week we said that because of the gospel, I don't live for myself any longer. No longer do I live for me. Life's not about me. I'm no longer the center of the universe. Because of the gospel, the power of the gospel in my life, now Jesus is the center of the universe. And I begin to see people the way that he sees people, right? No longer in physical ways, no longer in worldly ways, in earthly ways. Now I see people the way that he does. And I love people the way that he does. And it says that we are his ambassadors. You and I get a chance to be his representatives here on earth. And so this led us to our first value the way that we say it around here is this. This is is the foundational thing, really, to all that we do here at Grace Church, and we say it this way. We live to make Jesus make sense. That's why we exist. We exist. We live to make Jesus make sense. We say we're preoccupied with making any necessary sacrifice to make the—and those are strong, strong words, right? Any necessary sacrifice— to make the story of Jesus clear and accessible to anyone seeking after him. We live to make Jesus make sense to a world and to a people that we love and that we care about. That's our foundational value. That's what we talked about week one. Week two, we said uh, that what fuel we talked about what fuels us, what prepares us, what challenges us to make Jesus make sense. And it's our second value. We said we share life together, right? We cannot live without honest relationships. We're resolved to figure out how to love God, love, Pete, love each other, and live on mission together. We said that God made us to be in relationships with one another. And we said sharing life together, it's not just about like, keeping me happy. It's not just about meeting my needs. It's not just about like polishing me off and making me better. It's actually about training me. And preparing me and challenging me to go out into real life and live and succeed in the mission that Jesus left us here on, which is to make disciples. And we said that doing life together is beautiful. Like it's beautiful, but it's also really messy. It's beautiful because we have these awesome deep relationships, right? That we're prepared and they challenge us to go out and to make disciples. But it's also messy because we're human, you know? And we all have flaws, we all have baggage. We all have gunk in our lives that we're working through. And we're, as, just as Jesus didn't run away from our gunk, from the messiness in our lives, as followers of Jesus, we don't run away from the messiness in other people's lives. We run toward the mess, and we help people, and we serve people, and we love people the way that Jesus did for us, right? And when we do that, when we enter into the messes in other people's lives, and we allow other people into the messes in our lives, it actually helps us grow as followers of Jesus, It actually helps us recognize and remember over and over again how much he's forgiven us from. When we have to show grace and forgiveness to people, we're reminded about how he's shown us grace and how he's shown us forgiveness. That's what we talked about two weeks ago. Then last week, we talked about uh, how each and every one of us is needed. Right? We said we have no spare parts. Everyone in the church has an essential part to play. By discovering and developing how we fit into God's storyline, we experience unimaginable supernatural life change in and around us. And so we looked at uh, the Jesus, God's metaphor of the church as the body of Christ. We said, we're the body of Christ. That's what the church is. And every part of the body is essential. And so we kind of from that metaphor, we pulled out some things. We pulled out some principles that we discussed last week. One of them, we said, you and I are different, but we're united, Right. We might be a little bit similar, like a hand and a foot are similar parts of the body, or we might be very, very different, but we're together. We're all part of the one body. We're connected to each other. We said that I'm exactly the way that God designed me to be, and so are you. And God doesn't make mistakes. You are not a mistake. Your life is not a mistake. You are exactly the way that God designed you to be, with your skills, with your personality, with who you are. That's who God designed you to be. No mistakes. And we said that that I'm not everything. No one is everything. I have strengths and I have weaknesses. And you're not everything, right? You have strengths and you have weaknesses. And maybe my strengths might make up for some of your weaknesses. And maybe your strengths might make up for some of my weaknesses. And we said that we're actually designed. I think this is such a cool thought. We're actually designed so that we only function properly when we're together, because none of us is everything, right? So the only way we can really function properly as one body is when we're united, when we're together. And we, (coughs) excuse me, we said that no part of the body is better than any other part, right? We're all equal. No part, no part is better than any other part. And we said that we're interconnected, When one part of the body hurts, it affects the rest of the body. We talked about the ankle, right? Like when my ankle hurts, it affects all of me. I start to get in a bad mood. Even though the rest of my body is just fine, when my ankle hurts, when one part hurts, it affects the entire body. We're connected to each other. And so we ended our time last week with two questions, right? I hope you had a chance to, whether in your grace groups or uh, at home or in your prayer time, I hope you had a chance to interact with these a little bit. The first question was, what's my part? Right. We said what what like we each need to know what our part is. You know? Am I a hand? Am my am I a foot? Am I a head? What is my part? Right? And we said this question's not that hard in the big picture, it's not that hard for us to answer. Like, I kind of know what I'm good at. I kind of know what my strengths are. I kind of know what my weaknesses are. I know what I'm passionate about. And I have other people in my life that I could ask and say, what do you think? Like, is this, is this a strength of mine? And we talked about on the back table, we have them again this week, the shape test, which is just an exercise to help you understand who God wired you so I don't think this first question is all that hard. The second question I think is more challenging, and that's, am I doing what I'm designed for? If I'm, if I'm an eye, am I seeing? Right? If I'm an ear, am I hearing? If I'm a leg, am I supporting the body? Am I doing what I'm designed for? It's challenging for us. And guys, that's what it's going to take in order for us to do this. In order for us to launch a campus and make a difference in this community with the gospel, It takes all of us doing exactly what we're designed for. We have no spare parts. So I hope you had a chance to interact with that a little bit this week. So this moves us to our fourth value this week that, again, is driven by the gospel. Because of the disturbance of the gospel in our lives, we are fully committed to kids and students. We're fully committed to kids and students. We unapologetically devote major resources and energy towards shaping a God-centered worldview during a person's prime developmental years, we are fully committed to kids and students. You know, when we first found out that um, we we're going to do church this way, that we we're going to do church in a, in a uh, location that's, that's rented and do it portably, like the first thought we thought was, we can do this. Like We've never done it before, but we can do it. I think we can do it. Second thought we had was, we better get the right stuff to do it right, you know? Third thought... When we found out we couldn't get the stuff really quickly, the third thought was, with this, we can kind of scale down. Like, we don't have to have a full drum set. We could put Don on the cajon or whatever that thing is that he hits, you know. Like, we can use a projector and just kind of set it up. We could kind of fake it. We could piece it together a little bit with the adults, right? But then our next thought was, we can't skimp on the kids. we got to do it right. we got to do it right with the children. And so what we did was uh, Jim Hanna and John Case and I, the day before we launched, drove up to Detroit, Michigan, actually Troy, Michigan, a little bit north of Detroit, and we picked up all of the kids' ministry stuff and, uh, because they were able to rush it through and get that stuff done for us ahead of time, and we set it up for the very first time for our very first service. It was a little crazy. It was a little stressful. We're like pros at it now, right? But kids are incredibly important to us. You know, when we're filling out our staff here at the Barberton campus, it's no mistake or coincidence that one of the very first staff that we hired was somebody to create and to lead our student ministries. That's Tyler Jensen. We hired Tyler in order to create and to lead students because we said they are so important. We've got to do it well. We've got to do it well. And so he's beginning even now to put together his youth staff and we're planning on launching our student ministry stuff late this spring, early summer. You go to any campus at Grace Church, it's not long before you realize that kids and students, they're a huge priority for us, and they're incredibly valuable in what we do. And we do everything within our means to help our kids, the kids that the Lord has entrusted to us, to understand who Jesus is at a young age. One of the, uh, one of the pollsters uh, do, do research, Barna Research Group, they say that 43%, 43% of people that make a profession of faith for Jesus Christ do so before the age of 13. 43%, that's almost half of everybody that comes to follow Jesus does so before they're 13. And 64%, almost two out of every three people that come to faith in Jesus Christ do so before they're 18 years old. And basically, the older you get, the longer that you live apart from Jesus, the less and less likely you are to turn from whatever it is that you're following. We all follow something. Whatever it is that you're following, to follow Jesus. And so we want to do everything we can to help kids understand Jesus in ways that are appropriate to their age, right? That are developmentally appropriate. We want to do everything that we can to help them and pray that they would follow Jesus, that they would understand who he is and follow him during these prime developmental years of, of up to 18 years old. So we love kids. We love kids. We value kids so much. They're important to us. Jesus loved kids, right? Like you read in Matthew 19, it's this beautiful picture. I love, I love this thought. I think this is such a cool image of Jesus. In Matthew 19, he's sitting there, and parents are bringing their children up to Jesus. And they're, like, sitting on his lap. I imagine him kind of playing with them, being silly with them, right? And he puts his hand on them, and he's praying for them. It's just beautiful. And then his disciples walk up to him. I think, I think maybe after a while, they think it's, like, distracting to Jesus or something. His disciples walk up, and they start to rebuke the parents and say, no, 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 just leave them leave alone for a little bit. And Jesus then rebukes them. And he says this, he says, let the little children come to me, don't hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. He challenges us in another place to have a childlike faith, you know, And and then what he does is he puts his hands on them again, and he prays for them, and it's just this beautiful image of who Jesus is, this little snapshot, this little portrait of him. He had a limited time here on earth, right, a limited time, and children were no inconvenience to him. They were a priority to him. It's beautiful. My kids are fun, you know? And they're funny, right? When uh, our son started talking... You know, when kids first start talking, they start saying silly things a lot of times because they don't understand, you know, expressions and things like that. And so um, as Luke started saying silly things, Marsha is so smart, she got a little book and she started writing things down, a little quote book. And so, because you forget them, you know, like, as your kids get older, you just forget this stuff. So she started writing it down. So I pulled it out the other day and I started reading some of the stuff. It's hilarious. Like, it's hilarious. Like, Luke used to say, when he would get frustrated with us, he used to say, you're getting on my nervous. When, when it was foggy outside, he would look around and go, it's froggy outside. I love that one. I had a friend um, who, his name is Brock, and he came over, uh, not in, in town, he came over, and Luke came downstairs, and he walked down, and he goes, what's Brock Obama doing here? Not Brock Obama. And then another time, he, uh, what was the other one? Oh, I think it was Marsha, it might have been me, he had something on our foot, like a blister or something, and he walked down, and he said, what's on your foot? Is it a bungus? Like a bungus. Natalie says some funny things, too. Like Natalie doesn't call a fly swatter a fly, a fly swatter. She calls it a bug slapper, <laughs> which I love that one. Or she'll say things like instead of saying um, yesterday, she'll say last night ago. Which I really like that. Like we said two days ago or a week ago. It makes sense to say last night ago. Um, she still says this one. She's, got, she's a little sassy. Natalie's a little sassy, or a little five-year-old. So when, when she's a little frustrated with us or something, or she thinks she knows more than we do, she'll say, how do you know? It's not like you're a teacher or a scientist. The other day we were, it's, it's Black History Month, so the other day there was something on TV about Booker T. Washington. And she looks over and she says, Who's Booker T. Washington? kind of funny. Kids are funny. Kids do funny things. So what I want to do right now is I want to, um, I want to look at a passage that maybe is kind of a weird passage for us to look at um, as we're talking about how we value kids and students. But I think in the end, it's going to challenge us to really look at our lives and how our lives are affecting the next generation. So if you have your Bibles, flip them open to 1 Kings chapter 3. First Kings chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, we got a bunch of them back there on the table. You're welcome to grab one. If you don't have one of your own, you're welcome to have that, to take that with you. Um, in those Bibles, it's page 266. What I want us to do is I want us to look at the life of Solomon. So some of you hate history. Some of you like history. But I want to just uh, update us a little bit, I'll give us a little bit of biblical history here. So a little quiz. Ready? Who was the first king of Israel? Anyone? Saul, yes. Saul was the first king of Israel. Saul started out really well, right? He ended terribly. He disobeyed God uh, in very serious ways. And so after 40 years, Paul or Saul was king for 40 years. After 40 years, the kingdom was taken away from him, and it was given to the second king of Israel, which was David, right? David was the second king of Israel. He's the only one in the Bible who is known as a man after God's own heart, right? David is one of the most important people in Jewish history, and yet he was a deeply flawed man who committed some incredibly serious sins, like murder, for example. And the kingdom of of Israel was rooted under David. It was established under David by him, and David reigned for 40 years. When he died, he left the kingdom to his son, who was Solomon, right? Solomon was the third king. Solomon was known as the wisest man to ever live, right? Right? The wisest man to ever live. The kingdom was really at its pinnacle under Solomon, and God blessed him immensely. Solomon was incredibly rich, incredibly wealthy, and the kingdom under Solomon had peace. And Solomon built a lot of things during his reign, right? Like he built this incredibly extravagant palace for himself. He's the one who built the temple for God, right? He had all these other kinds of different building projects. He also reigned for 40 years, and by the time his reign ended, Israel is like postured to be a world power for years to come, right? They are at the pinnacle as a, as a nation, incredibly rich, incredibly wealthy, building projects, power, all of this stuff, right? When he dies, he's succeeded by his son. Anybody know who his son was? This is the tough one, Rehoboam. Okay, Rehoboam is the fourth king of Israel, and under Rehoboam, Rehoboam, he receives the kingdom at its pinnacle. Okay, under Rehoboam, the kingdom immediately splits, and all but one, or maybe two, depending on how you read the passages, depending on how you understand the text, all but one or two go off and form their own kingdom, their own nation, which is called Israel. So they break off. Uh, Judah is the southern kingdom and then Israel is all the rest of the tribes uh, up in the northern kingdom, and they become their own evil kingdom, and they never have one king in the northern kingdom who is a good person, essentially. Every one of them is described as evil and not following God, and eventually they're conquered by Assyria. The southern kingdom, most of their kings are evil as well, right? And eventually they're conquered by Babylon. In less than one generation... This nation goes from the pinnacle, wealth, peace, prosperity, new temple, worshiping God, right? They go from there to falling apart. What in the world happened? Well, that's what I want us to look at. Because I think a lot of the responsibility lies with Solomon because of mistakes that he made. That I think you and I can learn from. So you're in First Kings chapter three. I want to read, um, I don't I don't usually do this, but I want to read some big chunks of scripture, usually kind of break it down a little bit more. I want us to read some big chunks of scripture together because I think it'll give us a good understanding of what was happening, and in the end it'll pull it all together. So 1 Kings chapter 3, starting in verse 4. This is what it says. The king went so this is about Solomon. The king Solomon went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices, for that was what that was the most important high place. And Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream. And God said, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. Solomon answered, You've shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You've continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on the throne this very day. Now, Lord my God... You've made your servant king in the place of my father, David, but I'm only a little child, and I do not know how to carry out my duties. He was about 20 years old when he became king. Verse 8, your servant is here among the people you've chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong, for who's able to govern this great people of yours? Well, the Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, since you've asked for this and not for a long life or wealth for yourself, nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment and ministering justice, I will do what you've asked. I'll give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I'll give you what you've not asked for, both wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. And Solomon awoke and he realized it had been a dream. So here's what I get from this passage that's relevant for our discussion right now. There's lots in this passage, but here's what I get that's relevant for our discussion right now. Solomon starts out well. He starts out really, really well. He's humble, right? Like he's got, he's got the right heart. God has his heart. He understands that he's got to be dependent on the Lord. He understands his responsibilities in in being king over God's chosen people, right? He understands his priorities. He's humble. He's dependent on the Lord. He asks God for wisdom to do what God has called him to do. Like he starts out really well. And when he does, guess what happens? He experiences blessings and successes, Flip over to chapter 10. You're in chapter 3. Flip over to chapter 10. Lots of things happen in between, okay? In those seven chapters in between, lots of things happen. You see all these little snapshots of Solomon's wisdom. You probably heard about the story of the little baby and the two women that claim to be the mother, right? That's one example. I encourage you to check that out sometime. You see these little snapshots of his wisdom. He builds the temple of God in these chapters. He builds this incredible palace for himself. He dedicates the temple of God. God appears to him a second time. He has all these other building projects in Israel. Lots of stuff happens in these chapters. And then you get to chapter 10 and you see the extent of the blessings and successes that God has given to him. Look at it. Look at verse 14. 1 Kings chapter 10, 14. (coughs) Excuse me. The weight of the gold that Solomon received yearly, every single year, was 666 talents. That's 25 tons. That's 50,000 pounds of gold every year not including the revenues from merchants and traders and from all the Arabian kings and the governors of the territories. King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold, 600 shekels of gold, that's about seven and a half pounds, went into each shield. He also made 300 small shields of hammered gold with three minas of gold in each shield. The king put them in the palace of the forest of Lebanon. Then the king made a great throne covered with ivory, overlaid with fine gold. It had six steps. It had a back that was rounded on top. Both sides of the seats where there were armrests with a lion standing beside each of them. Twelve lions stood on the six steps at either end of each step. Nothing like it had ever been made in the kingdom. All King Solomon's goblets were gold. All the household articles in the uh, palace of the forest at Lebanon were pure gold. Nothing was made of silver because he was so rich that silver was considered of little value in Solomon's day. The king had a fleet of trading ships at sea, along with the ships of Hiram. Once every three years, it returned carrying gold, silver, and ivory, apes, and baboons. Verse twenty-three kind of sums it all up. King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings on the earth. The whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. Year after year, everyone who came brought a gift, articles of silver and gold, robes, weapons and spices, horses and mules. Solomon is seeking after God. He starts out well, and God blesses him in incredible ways. Ridiculous amounts of gold, right? Shields to protect them, beautiful ivory throne, apes and baboons. You know you've arrived when you got baboons. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know you got wealth when you got baboons. Incredible. Solomon has his heart right. He asks the Lord for wisdom. God gives him wisdom to rule the people, and he also gives him every other thing that his heart desires. But guess what happens? We should look at it. Look at chapter 11, excuse me, one chapter over, chapter 11. Look at what happens. Verse 1, King Solomon, however, in spite of all the blessing, in spite of all the successes, King Solomon loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they'll surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast in in love to them. He had 700 wives of royal birth, that's right, 700 wives of royal birth, and another 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of his father David had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. And he did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's commands. See, guys, Solomon's heart becomes divided. Solomon starts out so well, right? And, got, and he experienced this incredible blessings and success from the Lord, but Solomon's heart becomes divided, and it's so sad. in In the original Hebrew, in the original language, is written. And back in chapter three, it says that Solomon loved, which is ahab. He loved God, right? And then you get to chapter eleven, which we just read, read, and it says that Solomon loved ahab, these many foreign women which sounds sort of innocent at first. Like, I love my wife and I love God, right? But very quickly, his deep love, or maybe maybe a better word is his infatuation with these foreign women, which God forbade. God said, you can't do it. We just read that, right? You must not intermarry with them. They will turn your heart to other gods if you do. His deep love for these foreign women led to his heart being divided. And then it led to him worshiping other gods. No longer did he love God, the way that he did at the beginning. He turned away. And it's so sad. There was so much potential at the beginning. But it gets even sadder because at the end of his reign, he turns his kingdom over to his son, Rehoboam, right? Rehoboam is the son of Namah, who is an Ammonite woman. So it's one of Solomon's Ammonite wives, another foreign wife. The Ammonites worshipped Molech, which is one of the pagan gods. And because of his love for Namah, And other Ammonite women, Solomon starts worshiping Moloch as well. And guess who has Rehoboam's heart? It says in uh, chapter 14, a little bit later in chapter 14, it tells us that Rehoboam led, he led Judah to do evil in the eyes of God. He was out in front. He wasn't just an innocent bystander. He was participating, and he was leading the way in this, in the worship of other gods, many foreign gods. It says this, it says, They set up for themselves high places, sacred stones and asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. There were even male shrine prostitutes in the land. The people engaged in all of the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. So Rehoboam followed in his daddy's footsteps, right? Right? He he did what his daddy did. His daddy started worshiping these foreign gods, and Rehoboam starts worshiping these foreign gods. And you know what else happens? It doesn't just stop at Rehoboam. It goes on. In the very next chapter, in chapter 15, it says, in the 18th year of the reign of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, so Jer- so we have the southern kingdom, Rehoboam was leading it, we have that northern kingdom that broke away, Jeroboam, which is kind of confusing because they're both Boams, right? But Jeroboam is in the northern kingdom, okay? In the 18th year of Jeroboam in the northern kingdom, in the southern kingdom, Abijah, who is the son of Rehoboam, the grandson of Solomon, becomes the king of Judah, and he reigns in Jerusalem three years. His mother's name was Mekah, daughter of Abishalom. He committed all the sins his father had done before him. His heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his forefather had been. See, here's the thing, guys. Solomon's divided heart affected much more than just Solomon's heart. Solomon's divided heart affected much more than just his heart. It affected his son. It affected his grandson. And it affected an entire nation. So why do I share this with you? Why why are we talking about this on a Saturday when we're talking about how much we value kids and students? I tell you this because we're not just living for ourselves. Like you and I, we're not just here for ourselves. We're not just living for ourselves, but we're living for generations to come. I'm not living for just me. Don't fool yourself into thinking that the rotten things that are going on, that might be going on in your life are only affecting you. Don't fool yourself into thinking that. It's not true. Your life affects many, many people. People see it. Your kids see it. If they don't, they will your, the rest of your family sees it, your spouse she, she or he sees it, or they will your friends, your coworkers, your classmates. Our life affects much more than just our life. It has an effect. What we do has an effect. I was meeting with a pastor this past week who um, was telling me that one of his associate pastors, they just found out was committing adultery. And it's terrible. Because I can guarantee you, I can guarantee you that when that man started fooling around with another woman, all he was thinking about was himself. He was not thinking about how what he was doing was going to impact everyone else. His wife, children, the entire congregation. How about everybody that doesn't like the church that goes, see, that's what the church is about. Me and a, a small group of guys here are reading a book together called Churchless. And basically it's a, church, uh, it's a book that's talking about how quickly our, our country is being filled with this churchless generation. And basically what it's saying is that, you know, people my age that may, and a little bit younger who grew up going to church, many of them stop going to church. Once you get to be an adult, you just kind of stop, you kind of fizzle out, and no longer are you attending, no longer are you learning about God, no longer are you engaged in any sort of disciple-making. And what happens is we start to have children, and the effects are exponential, because no longer is it just me that's not going to church. Now I have children that have never been to church. you believe that? Tons of kids today that have never been in church because mom and dad decided by their own choice that it's not for them. They don't really care anymore. They may believe in God, but they don't connect anymore. They're not learning about who God is and they're not teaching their children. See, just as Solomon's divided heart affected so much more than just himself, so does yours and so does mine. If we're not careful, our kids and future generations will be affected by our apathy, by our laziness, by our lack of discipline, by our sin. A guy named Reggie Joyner Uh, says this, I like this quote because I think it's true. says, the only thing that matters 100 years from now is whether or not our kids have a relationship with Jesus. And I, I think that's true. The only thing that matters 100 years from now is whether or not our kids have a relationship with Jesus. Think about this. What are the potential repercussions in your life if your heart becomes divided? What's affected? Who's affected? what sort of impact will it have on generations to come in your life not just for you not just for your immediate family what kind of repercussions will it have if your heart goes from being focused on the lord to being divided because the truth is it doesn't stay divided very long we all pursue something right we're we're not just living for ourselves we've said this over and over again during this series We're living for other people as well. Maybe primarily even for other people. We said we live to make Jesus make sense to other people, right? We live to share life together. We share life together with other people so that we're challenged and we're we're prepared to make Jesus make sense to people. We said that that there's no spare parts. I'm part of something bigger than me with other people. Can, Can I ask you this? I want you to think about this. In your life, What are your foreign wives? Do you know what I mean by that? Like, What are the temptations in your life that tempt you to pull your heart away from God, to divide your heart and put themselves in the place of God in your life? What are your foreign wives? It could look like a lot of different things for each of us. It might look like, for some of us, it might look like wealth. It might look like security, like money, right? And it it grabs my heart and it becomes the most important thing to me. For others of us, it might be a significant other. You know, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a spouse. For others of us, it might be our kids. I love my kids. Okay. Are your kids the most important thing about you? If they are, your marriage is going to struggle. If they are, your relationship with the Lord is going to struggle. For some of us, it might be exercise. I love to exercise, but I'll be honest. I've seen people, I've seen a lot of people that exercise becomes their God, and they pursue it more than anything else. It is the most important thing that they do in their day. What are you tempted to put in the position that only God should have in your life? What has the potential to pull your heart away from Him? Whatever it is, we all have them. It's okay to admit that. We all have these temptations. We all have these struggles. We all have these things that tug on our heart and say, follow me, pursue me. I do. You do. We all do. It's okay. It's good to be honest about that, and I think it's really good to be honest with other people about that, not in a big public way, but people that you trust, people that you can share this with who will help hold you accountable so that your heart only stays focused on Jesus, right? That same author I quoted earlier, Reggie Joyner, he says, As leaders and parents, our primary calling is not to keep our children in church, but to lead them to be the church. That's a great statement. Our primary calling is not to keep kids in the church. We can do lots of fun things with kids so that they have an absolute blast and they want to come here every week. That's not our primary calling. Our calling is to teach them to be the church. Are you teaching your children? And the children of Grace Church to be the church. Not just to come, but to be the church. We want, we want the kids that the Lord's entrust, that the Lord entrusts us with, that He brings here. We want them to love it here. Like we want them to have an absolute blast. But that is not all that we want. It's not just babysitting in the gym, right? Like we do kids ministry because we desperately want them to hear the gospel in a way that makes sense to them so that they can choose Jesus at a young age and so that they can be the church. We used to joke with my parents and say, hey, um, you better be nice to us, or else one day when we get older, we're going to put you in a home. Like, nice kids, right? But the truth is, here's the thing. One day, we're going to pass the baton to the kids of today, and they're going to be in charge. They're going to be in charge. And the church of Jesus Christ is going to be dependent on them. They're going to be responsible to lead and to be the church. Are we preparing And are we investing in them now so that the church of Jesus Christ does not miss a beat? See, Solomon failed, and the results for him were catastrophic. His son, his grandson, an entire nation. But guys, if we fail, the results are catastrophic too. But the good news is, the beautiful news is, we have the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of us. We have the love of the Father. We have the grace that comes by Jesus Christ, and we have each other, right? We get a chance to do this together, and we cannot drop the ball. We cannot fail. And we depend on the Lord every step of the way, and we do it all to his glory. So God, um, I pray that you would help us to do just that. Lord, help us to be people that see much broader than just ourselves. It's so easy. The temptations are so strong to just focus on us, and we don't want to be that way because that's not what you've called us to. Help us, God, to see past ourselves and to think about how what we do with our lives and where our hearts are have the capacity to affect generations to come. Our children, our grandchildren, generations to come by the choices that we make today. God, would you impassion us and empower us to make an an impact and an imprint on the kids that you bring to us right now that we get a chance to minister to. We love them, God, and we know that you love them even more. So we ask for your help, Lord, to make a difference in their lives. and We need you. In Christ's name, amen.